Today's guest is Stuart Diver. Stuart Diver is a name that most people in Australia who are probably under over 40 would know. Uh, he became a household name as the only survivor of the Threadbow landslide in 1997. It claimed the lives of 18 people, including his wife Sally. A few years later, he found love again, meeting Rosanna Cossettini. They married in 2002. Stuart and Rosanna lived at Threadbow with their daughter Alessia until Rosanna died from breast cancer in 2015. I've heard Stuart interviewed many times before and he always talks so positively about life and all it has to offer. And that's the direction I, I want to take today. I just thought it was for someone that's experienced so much around the topic of grief, um, but to still have that such positive outlook on life, it was worthwhile really having a chat to him. Hi, Stuart. How are you going? Great. Thanks, Milton. Uh, great to be here. Thanks. To give some context to our discussion and for those that listen to this uh, outside of Australia, um, they may not know who Stuart Diver is. So can you tell us, um, I know you were, uh, you were originally from Victoria and I'm sort of curious how you found your way to Threadbow. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, I've always spent a lot of time um, in the mountains with my mum and dad as a, uh, as a child and Threadbow was always a place that we uh, had come and skied and, and spent a lot of time in summer as well, um, climbing Mount Kosciuszko and all of the beautiful uh, area that, um, you know, that this has to offer. And uh, so, you know, I'd always wanted somewhere in the back of my mind to um, to come back and uh, to, to work in the mountains. And, um, yeah, I went to uni and finished that and uh, decided that um, I really wanted to be uh, somewhere where I could work in the outdoors. And so, yeah, came up to Threbo in 1994 and um, started work as a ski instructor and, um, as they say, never looked back. <laughs> never left. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I know it's funny when you uh, when you look back. Oh, nineteen ninety four, and you realise, oh, that is quite a long time ago. But it's um, yeah. I mean, this is obviously my home now, and a, and a place that's um, you know, that's a wonderful community and a place that's uh, given me a lot in my life. So yeah, I love being here. The night of July thirtieth, nineteen ninety seven, your life and um, and the lives of many, I imagine, um, were turned on their head. Can you take us through, you know, what happened close to midnight on that night of July 30th, 97? Yeah, I mean, I was obviously uh, asleep with uh, my wife Sally at that time and uh, we were in bed. It was, uh, yeah, just prior to midnight and, um, yeah, we'd been out, done some shopping and come back, had dinner and, um, yeah, just a normal average night and then uh, it all went a little bit upside down and um, obviously the landslide occurred and, you know, the brief synopsis of that, there was about 8,000 tonnes of uh, building and rubble that um, slid down the hill and um, took out the building above ours and then the building that um, I was in along with, you know, 18 others. Um, and, you know, sadly, uh, as the, the building came down, it, um, it basically killed uh, everyone else um, in that building, um, you know, including, uh, including my wife Sally. So it was um, the start of a very, very traumatic uh, 65 hours um, uh, where I was buried and, um, and finally very thankfully rescued. I mean, I can only imagine how I mean, cold it must have been at the first thing, let alone the increased, unbelievable shock, I should say, in relation to what had actually taken place. Um, when you hear some of these natural disasters, people often refer to the noise that they could hear as it was unfolding. I mean, did you even have the, op the chance to hear that or was it just upon you before you'd even realise what had happened? 
Yeah, I mean, we, there was definitely a roar and um, I either thought it was an aeroplane um, flying like low down the valley as they sometimes do in Threbo um, and, or I thought it was a really massive wind gust. Uh, but then as the building started to shake, I realised there was something else going on. But it was Threadbow's a really dark place so it was there's no or very little street lighting, et cetera. So it was pitch black so I couldn't actually see what was happening. Um, so as the building collapsed uh, down onto us, yeah, you really had no idea of um, of what was going on. Um, and the reality was, apart from me knowing, you know, where I was and where I was um, trapped in that building for that whole next 65 hours, I really had no idea um, of of where I was, of, you know, what was going on, obviously external of the building. Um, so, yeah, it was quite a... Uh, Quite a quite an interesting place to be, um, you know. And obviously, Sally died, you know, in the first uh, couple of minutes. Um, and you know, so to have to be there and deal with that trauma as well um, was really, uh, you know, obviously a, a hugely difficult um, thing to deal with um, over that period. And, and you know, and you know, if you look at trauma and what it does to you, it's the the, the big unknowns are the things that really are difficult to deal with. So you know, I spent a lot of time afterwards trying to work out what was known but it, 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 in that instance it was yeah it was it was as I've said you know previously it was you know terrifying and um yeah and to 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 go through that um and then to be able to come out I, I look back at that you know now 20 odd years later um surprised that um yeah surprised that I made it out I'm sure you are. It'd be one of those things because when you look, when I looked at the footage, you know, but we, and I remember at the time, just seeing the, the sheer devastation of the site. I mean, you look at it and think, well, how could anyone survive that? Um, but you know, what we've seen in in these sorts of you know tragedies around the world, generally they are taking somebody out three days later or two. Days, it might be one or what have you. But did were you could you when could you actually hear the um, the you know, the SES people trying to, you know, the, the, I suppose moving stuff around or any voices. Were you conscious of anything like that, you know, within the first, you know, the, I suppose the next day? I mean, yeah, no, I was conscious very early of that. I mean, it is, I mean, just back to your original point there, I mean, it is amazing in the world, I mean, how many people survive, you know, unbelievable uh, things, you know, every day, um, not just being buried and coming out, but, you know, the human spirit is amazing and it's, uh, it's incredible what, you know, we as humans, you know, people always say, oh, I could never have survived that. I could never have got through that. And I always say, you know, don't discount yourself. You're, you're always can. You never know what you're capable of. And that's, you know, what was amazing for me in that situation, you know, as a 27-year-old, sure, I was fairly physically strong, you know, maybe I'd been tested a little bit in my life mentally, but there's no way if you'd said, you know, one minute before that that happened, this is what's going to happen and you'll come out 65 hours later. There's no way I thought I could have done it. So it's, uh, you know, humans are amazing. We, we you know, get through unbelievable things uh, every day in our lives. So, you know, that's a really important, you know, thing to focus on. Um, for me, I could hear that there were people um, walking around uh, above me on the site uh, very early on, probably within the first hour. Um, and a lot of the work I did with my psychologists post um, the landslide was really trying to work out that timeline. And it was amazing. If I could tell them 
where the excavators were moving, when the crane was coming, when the helicopter came over to take photos of the site, all of that stuff pretty well down to the minute. Um, we did a 65-hour timeline and went through to try and break everything down. Um, yeah, so it was pretty incredible. But the the biggest frustration for me was in not knowing, and you've got to remember that I, I didn't know that just the two buildings had collapsed. I when you know i swung from the fact that the whole world had ended there'd been a massive nuclear war and you know everything was done so I, i'm done so i then but then i'd hear some some noise coming and i'd think oh they're coming to rescue me and then they'd go away and i'd go oh that's okay just be patient because they might be rescuing the people next door or you know there there could have been 30 buildings in Threadbow that collapsed or whatever it is you know the human mind takes you to interesting places so to be able to, um, yeah, so it was in, in some ways I could hear, that gave me comfort and then it would be devastating when it went silent or they went away and, you know, as you know, they moved, the rescuers came on and off the site on multiple occasions due to the um, due to the fact that it was so unstable and so when they went away and it all went quiet, I'd be thinking, oh, well, that's it, I'm done now and then I'd hear some noise again and they'd come back. But if you, you know, you look at that, the initial contact wasn't made or the human contact with me by, only by, via voice because I was buried uh, such a long way down um, wasn't made, you know, until, you know, we were 50, 54 hours in. So I'd been... Uh, by myself for a long time, um, <laughs> uh, worrying about whether people were were coming and going. So I had a, I had a lot of time to think about stuff. In absolutely freezing conditions, I'd imagine. Yeah, I mean, it was between about minus two and plus two the whole way. So through, so I lost. 15 kilograms uh, over the 65 hours, um, most of that obviously in fat. Um, and so, yeah, it was it was pretty – by the time they got to me, I was, you know, very, very, very close to, to, to dying. Um, so, yeah, it was a, from a physical point of view, you know, let alone take out the mental stuff, it was, um, it was a fairly traumatic experience. Luckily for me, you know, I wasn't – injured um in any major way i had a few glass cuts and stuff like that but you know um it was you know pretty incredible when you think that you know over eight thousand tons of building and rubble fall down and um you know and every bit of that just happened to miss me it's interesting um you know i remember seeing on one of the interviews and you just said it then that there was no you know how could you of course know what had happened and when we're watching the footage of this landslide and the ses and on and off the site but for you i mean as you said could have been a plane that had gone into the side of the hill you know the mountain or it could have been a bomb or it could have been you know an earthquake i mean you just had no idea of what had actually happened yeah i mean and that's the bit that ends up getting you is the unknown so if you can imagine so i was in total cave darkness i couldn't could not see a thing. So I could put my finger in my eyeball, you know, I couldn't see my finger. It's um, so to be in that level of darkness with that amount of unknown um, was, was the most difficult um, thing down there because you ended up, you know, you know, knowledge is power, as we always say. Um, and to have no knowledge at all of anything, except the fact that I was in a fairly precarious situation um, really did take its toll mentally as the, as the hours went on. The other thing, which you know, when you look at an event such as this, there's the excitement around, um, you know, getting you out and the cheering, and which was, you know, obviously wonderful. But then there's, you know, you've hospitalised. You there's the interviews. The whole nation's aware of it. When, when the doorbell stopped ringing and all the phones stopped ringing, I mean, where, where was Stuart Diver left a few weeks or a month or so later? Because I, I imagine there's just 
just an, an unbelievable amount to deal with um, because, you know, on one level, I mean, no one had ever heard of Stuart Diver before that happened. And then through this amazing um, tragedy, uh, you thrust onto the front pages of papers and the, onto our television screens, and yet you're just an average guy that was just, just went to bed that night with his wife, and you've got to then deal with how this world has just turned upside down. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's one of the most difficult things and continues to be, you know, it's 20 odd years down the track, but my name is still synonymous with uh, with that event. Um, you know, I was fortunate in that I had great family and support around me uh, when I came out. And then obviously we got in, you know, media management professionals, et cetera, who were, um, who were able to to manage that side of it for me and protect me from a, from a lot of things. But, you know, it is an interesting one. There's a couple of levels there. It's the, the public um, and the, the attention that came from media. And, and that was really, you know, it was pre really, pre-internet it was pre um you know mobile phones had just really come in there was there was you know definitely no social media etc so it really was old school television newspapers and magazines um so it was a little bit more easy to control than it would be now Um, but it was really the first big televised media event of that that style of that style of trauma that had ever really occurred in Australia. So it definitely got a lot of attention and obviously that attention, you know, being the the only survivor um, basically, uh, yeah, came, came onto me. So yeah, there was some, some interesting times there, but you know, th- that can all generally be managed, um, which is good. I think the, the harder thing is, you know, and, and you would know this yourself, you know, if you, you, you know, amongst all of that, you know, I'd lost my wife and I think a, a lot of that got sort of forgotten and, and it generally does now and, you know, I can go into a bit detail later, but, you know, you know, I'm fortunate in a lot of ways in that I've had, you know, that experience, two very different experiences, you know, of losing, you know, my lifelong intimate partners um, and, in they, they were both in very very different circumstances, and obviously the Sally's death was you know you know way um, more traumatic um, than Rosanna's. And what what happens with that is you know there's a, there's a whole lot of things that go on there. But one of the main ones is when you come out and you're thrust into that light, and all of that stuff's going on, you don't get a chance to grieve. You, 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 I didn't have any of that going on, and so by the time it got to sort of six weeks later. Everyone, you know, as society does, everyone had sort of forgotten about that bit, and 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 I hadn't even started even grieving her death. I was focusing on doing a media interview, doing whatever, and you know, it's not the fault of the people around you or any of that sort of stuff. It really gets down to the fact that it it is it comes back to you as an individual, and you have to deal with it. And you know, and I obviously had a great psychologist, ended up getting a great psychologist, and had some really good mental health support there, which helped markedly in that area but the reality is it always just comes back to you as an individual so you know to deal with the media to deal with all of that stuff it was pretty easy because you had that support there you know to be thrust into the limelight as you know someone who'd gone through something in their life and and everyone wanted to know all about you yeah it was it was definitely a you know a, a tricky place to navigate sometimes but it was much much harder to navigate you know the grief and that personal loss on that level amongst all of that um and i and i think that that's where if you look back on it 
that's where we need to, you know, in society, we need to do better in supporting, um, you know, we, we have to go back to our own lives, we have to do all that sort of stuff, but we need to be better in supporting, you know, our family and our friends when they go through, um, you know, that sort of loss because it doesn't just go away in a couple of weeks, you know. Grieving is, you know, something that stays with you forever and I think that, um, you know, that people are, are all, you know, too ready to forget that fact um, and, it, and it really only hits you if you've been through it yourself. Yeah, well, I, I couldn't agree with you more because it does, you know, my experience, like, like a lot of people, I think, is that it's awkward for people to talk about it around you, and um, and you know they just want to hear that you're fine and you're doing okay, and and for whatever reasons we tend to, well, I did, um, you, you tend to say, well, I am fine, um, when you're not, <laughs> you're not. No, no, no. We do death really, really badly in Western societies, um, and we do it especially badly in you know anglo-saxon western societies where we um yeah we just let's not talk about it and hopefully it'll all stiff up a lip and it'll all just go away um and you know the thing with it is and i've learned this you know i've learned this in the last 12 months you know in regards to relationships with friends and all that sort of stuff if, if people are not willing to to come and suffer your pain with you and and be a part of that and be able to feel that share that with you and, and help then the reality is they're actually really not friends. Um, they're, they're, you know, and I know it can be difficult for people and some people don't have the mental capacity, the emotional capacity to be able to deal with some of, you know, the traumas, especially, you know, like yourself and, you know, me having, you know, lost, you know, lost intimate um, partners can be a really difficult thing to, to talk about, but we need to talk about it. You know, that's what people need in that time and and it doesn't it doesn't go away you know i'm you know it's 20 plus years you know since sally died you know it's just over five years since rosanna died it's you know this stuff doesn't go away you deal with it all the time and and my sort of become a little bit cynical but my one is you know if if people around me are not able to discuss that and not able to you know talk openly about that loss that grief and what it actually means for your life and, and on on the upside you know talk about the wonderful memories of you know those people who've died and and do all of those really positive things as well then it's you know it's it's sort of a harsh thing to say but it's um yeah maybe it's uh it, it's time for a uh, you know for 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 another relationship or another set of friends as you move along I mean, and you don't know how you're going to be, how you're going to react, of course, to these situations. But, you know, I, I think that, I mean, I'm in my 50s, late 50s, you know, and my sort of upbringing was, you know, very much in that sort of stoic, you know, just just get on with it. And, and so, I, you know, I probably didn't help myself either. I, I think it's different now. But during that time, you know, maybe if I'd been more vulnerable, you know, people might have opened up. More. I, I don't know. I mean, it's- yeah, we tend to say what people want to hear, which is, no, no, I'm fine. Life's great. Thanks very much. Give everyone a smile and away you go. And I, and I definitely, you know, fell into that trap early on as well. Because, you know, the other thing is, you know, if you look at um, Threadbar and what happened, eight, 18 other people had died. And so therefore, and a lot of them locals, a lot of them staff, so you're dealing, you know, I was dealing also with, you know, the the combined grief of an entire area, entire community, um, which I just happened to be the focus of the person who was alive and had survived it. But there was all of that other trauma that went with that. And, you know, so, I mean, I'm not, you know, not blaming anyone. There was a, we, there was a, we, a lot of us just went, you know, put our heads down and just, you know, tried to survive basically and get through. Um, but you know, as as time goes on, you know, and 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 we have got better at it, I think. But we, yeah, I I still believe there's a lot more 
work we can do as a society to be able to support those who are you know grieving the death of someone um and and make sure that that's done in a really positive way because as you say yeah no one wants to be around the person crying in the corner of the room all the time but now i was so aware of that that i never cried in the corner at any time you know i only cried on my own and so therefore you know then you get some criticism about gee you're a pretty hard ass you know what are you doing there whereas you know so you can you can actually never really win in those spheres um but on that personal level of the friends and the family and the people around you, you really need um, that support. Um, you know, it needs to be ongoing. It needs to be shared, and it needs to be and it needs to be positive because that's how you that's how you get through things like that. I agree. When um, a few years later you met Rosanna, it must have been just a, like a light going back on in your life, wasn't? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's it's sort of funny, you know, you, when's the right time to go into a new relationship and all of those sort of things and you you play around with it in your mind. Um, the way that I looked at it, you know, is that I had the most amazing relationship. It was only for seven years, you know, with Sally. We met young. We did some amazing things in our lives, some great trips around the world and, and shared some incredible experiences. Um, and, yeah, and that was tragically cut short. But the bit that I took from that and, you know, the memory of um, of Sally moving forward was that that was such a positive thing. Why wouldn't I want to share it again with someone? So I didn't want to rush out and fill the void, um, although, the, as you know, there is a massive void there and a massive hole in your life and it's such a lonely experience, you know, to, to lose someone and then to, you know, to have to be able to, to deal with that on your own. Um, but, you know, obviously when Rosanna came along and you know she was she worked and lived in Threadbar as well so we we knew each other um had known each other you know when Sally was alive um yeah and we and we formed a relationship it was uh yeah it was incredible and it was you know one of those things that wow this is great I've, I've finally found someone that I can you know share my life with again share those great travel experiences with again and you know and do all of the things that I wanted to you know wanted to do with Sally and um yeah so it was incredible to to find someone and and I think that you know what Rosanna really taught me was her ability was to listen and it was to be able to talk openly about Sally and openly about what had gone on in my life and provide, you know, that love and support that, you know, that I really, really needed, you know, at that time, because that was a couple of years after, you know, Sally's death. Um, you know, so there was still a lot going on in my life. And I mean, and that's, that's the bit that Rosanna really added. And when did um, you become aware of, of Rosanna's illness? Yeah, well, basically it was we'd gone out together for a couple of years and then um, thankfully she'd uh, agreed to marry me. So I decided uh, we uh, we got married and went on our, um, our honeymoon and just prior to the honeymoon, um, Rosanna found a little lump in her breast and she'd been hit on her breast with a netball a week before and so the doctor said, oh, don't worry about it, we'll just have a look at it when you come back. Could just be a little bit of bruising or something. So we went on a honeymoon um, and then came back and the week later uh, Rosanna went in, got a biopsy done on the lump, uh, yeah, and it uh, turned out to be uh, breast cancer, which was um, not the greatest start to our marriage. Um, so we ended up, you know, for, for me, it was really, I just flicked back into that survival mode and, 
you know, as you know, anyone, when you get that cancer diagnosis, um, you know, the first thing you think is that oh, the person with cancer is going to die. Um, this is, you know, a disaster. You know, how are we ever going to get through this? And then you just click into that survival mode and it becomes surgery and chemotherapy and all of that sort of stuff. So it was sort of like I, I went back into the same mode that I'd gone into when Sally had died. Yes, it is. You just do the do, don't you? Because it's um, once the initial shock is sort of uh, washed over, you would say, "Well, okay, well, you know, what do we have to do?" It's just uh, such a roller coaster. I mean, in terms of um, uh, Alessia being born, was that during a, a remission stage? Was it a conscious decision? You thought, "Well, let's have a child." I mean, was the prognosis looking better when you decided to have a child, or was it just like, "Let's just do this"? A huge amount of thought went into that process obviously but yeah Rosanna had been you know in remission for for a number of years and so we um yeah there was no sign you know of, of cancer anywhere um so yeah we, we we had those discussions and yeah I was happy to go either way um you know I could have lived my life pretty happily um not having a, a child and we knew you know there were obviously risks um in Rosanna getting pregnant um but there was an enormous amount of information around that at that time um and her chances having you know been through um been through all of radiation treatment the chemotherapy mainly um and then um the tamoxifen for Drugs. multiple years after that it, it really you know made and her age in that she was 44 um you know the chance of her getting pregnant were very very minimal um anyway so you know we we both agreed that you know it would be great it was something that you know rosanna um had really really wanted and you know and 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 i and i'd really wanted you know deep down in my life but you know i didn't want to put her through anything you know if it, if push came to shove i didn't want Rosanna to have Alessia and then to die and then I be left, you know, raising a single child because I didn't think that was a, a great thing for, for me to be doing. Um, and and I didn't want to do anything that was going to put Rosanna's health at risk. So we did, we discussed it, you know, at great length. But at the end, you know, we made the decision, um, you know, to try and get pregnant. Um, Rosanna had one mis miscarriage um, and then 12 months later got pregnant with Alessia and, and had only had, they were the only two periods that she had. So it was, um, yeah, a pretty um, unbelievable uh, pregnancy, and then um, obviously, uh, obviously, birth of Alessia, and which was, um, yeah, you know, amazing time for for both our lives. That goes extraordinary, isn't it? Um, post the birth, I mean, how long after that until you know, cancer uh, reemerged? Alessia uh, was born in in two thousand and ten, and yeah, you know, for the first couple of years, you know, everything was going really, really well, and then in about you know. 2000, late 2013, 2014, um, yeah, Rosanna started having some pretty severe back pains, uh, et cetera, and we went in and, yeah, she was diagnosed with, you know, secondary cancers and then, you know, it was in her bones, liver, um, and, you know, ended up spreading, um, you know, spreading fairly rapidly and, uh, yeah, and then, um, you know, went obviously uh, to her brain and ended up having some fairly major uh, surgery to remove a tumour from her brain. Um, and then, yeah, we were basically just putting out fires uh, to that point. And in 2015, yeah, she died. I mean, the, the, the extremes of it, of the, the two losses are immense really, aren't they? One is the, you know, the very sudden, you know, tragic accident um, of Threadrow and then the, the longer um, a cancerous journey that Rosanna faced. 
pre-grieving when someone is ill like that. It's extraordinarily difficult, isn't it? Because especially, you know, that last you know, period of time, I imagine it was pretty clear, you know, what was what was going to transpire. Um, but but it's it's a, a very, very difficult time because you effectively try to keep going. Um, you've got a young child, um, you know, you're trying to keep positive. You've got community in and around you. Um, but all the, the while along, there's this consciousness of where it's going. And that's not yeah, easy absolutely. to deal with. No, I mean the key the key for Rosanna and I and for Alessia at that point was my psychologist. Obviously I've had the same psychologist, Darren Wilson, all the way through from, you know, post landslide. Um so he'd been through a lot. He'd been through, you know, Rosanna's original diagnosis with breast cancer. So, you know, Rosanna and I went to see him then. He'd been you know, Rosanna and I had seen him later when we were trying to have Alessia and you know, and there's always little struggles and things that happen in relationships. So we you know, I'd formed Rosanna and I had formed a really good relationship relationship um with darren over the years and i think that was you know as you know milton i'm a huge advocate of um you know mental health and how you look after it and and, you know and it's great to have family friends everyone to talk to but there are some things you go through your life where you need a, a you know a mental health professional um and that's you know where darren he's played that role in my life and continues to now um i think it's you know incredible what what he did and he was a massive advocate of this this pre-grieving and we'd actually spoken about it all the way through from the initial time when Rosanna was was diagnosed um and and what it you know basically is all about is you know setting up all of those positive memories and locking them away so in case something happens um to your partner or to your child all of those things are already there so when sally died what we had to do is we had to go in and dig all those things out and you know recalibrate them and and then refocus on them whereas with rosanna we'd already done that so it was not you know necessarily saying oh this is you know this is the end and this is gloom and doom this person's going to die it was completely the opposite it was about trying to set up even Alessia and she was only four years of age at that time she's four and a half when Rosanna died um, but to set her up with all of those positive memories as well to try and give her the best basis to to be able to grieve you know the, the loss of her mum so it was it was it's unbelievably difficult difficult thing to sit down with someone who's still alive and talk about what life's going to be like when they're dead like brutally brutally hard but one of the best things i i ever did you know and i always say you know i always used to said this to rosanna it actually wasn't really for her because she's dead you know and and it sounds harsh but that was all really you know and i'm sure it gave rosanna more comfort in the fact that you know that that my life was going to go on and Alessia's life was going to go on and and that probably helped her especially you know in the the later stages just before you know she died but the reality was that was all about Alessia and I it's quite a an interestingly selfish thing to do but in in, in saying that you know the amazing things that Rosanna did like setting up a, a whole cookbook of all of, all her favorite recipes for Alessia and and writing birthday cards for Alessia and for every um, birthday until she was 18 and you know putting aside all her beautiful clothes and wrapping them all up in plastic etc so that they'd be there for Alessia when she turned 16 or 18 was able to wear, wear them I mean all of those must have been unbelievably painful for for Rosanna to do but you know she did all of those things so that you know 
so that Alessia and I could have a better life, you know, after she died. And and I know, you know, just in the moments before she, you know, she died, she wasn't greatly concerned about me because she knew that I'd been through stuff. I'd be able to look after myself. She was really only concerned about the fact of that I was going to look after Alessia and that Alessia was going to be okay. And and all of that pre-grieving that we'd done, that gave her the confidence that that was going to happen and that Alessia was going to be looked after. And I think that, you know, it, it, you know as you said, the two experiences so incredibly different. Um, and if I had to choose again, you'd definitely, um, you'd definitely do it uh, the way that um, Rosanna and I were able to, because um, to be able to have that time to process it and, and to talk about all of those things about, you know, who was, you know, who did Rosanna think would be, you know, a good future partner for me? You know, we had we went down into the those discussions and, you know, so some very raw and emotional areas that you go into, but, you know, stuff that then gave me the confidence moving forward that, you know, maybe I would be able to form a relationship with, you know, someone else again. Oh, it's extraordinarily courageous of it too, isn't it, when you think of it like that? And, but there's also a beautiful humanity to it. You know, she's looking for those that, you know, out for those that are going to be alive, you know, after she's gone. And it's just a, you know, keep, I mean, Alessia talks about it now. She goes, I can't even remember mum. You know, I can't remember this stuff. I, I look at her pictures, but I can't actually remember sitting on the couch or, you know, doing any of that stuff. Because when you're four and a half, you haven't locked away any of those sort of tangible memories. But what you've, what she's locked away is the fact that she, for the first four and a half years of her life, she pretty well spent every day with her mother. And that love is the memory that she has. And that's what I try and recreate in her life, you know, every day and try and show her that, you know, through through me is how, you know, she's still getting her mum's love. And, you know, that couldn't be done unless we had done all, all of that work prior. It's the other, um, you know, when you um, lose a, a partner, um, you know, you've got your own grief to deal with, but then you know, when you've got a child or children to deal with, it really becomes a magnification um, of the challenge. Um, I mean, you're dealing with a, you know, a, a young child at four and a half. I mean, in my situation was five children. And, you know, you, the days that, you know, you might be having a good day, you know, one of the children might be having a bad day. And it's very, very challenging scenario. But, um, um, and you know, when you, when you, uh, obviously, Darren Wilson, um, you know, was there for you post uh, Rosanna's um, death. But I mean, when I've heard you interviewed, you, you are such an advocate for life, and you're so positive. And um, has that been the mechanism that actually has been able to keep you going through, you know? some extraordinarily difficult situations although you know people do say shit happens and it happens to great people um so i mean how how have you managed to sort of keep yourself going like that it is, i mean it is an it is an interesting one there's a, there's a lot there i mean and in, in, in saying you know that i am i am a big advocate of mental health and health professionals um but you cannot use them as the that you need them every day in your life like i'm not a i'm not a fan of the some of the you know american therapist style of you know your cat has a therapist you have a therapist you see them three times a week you know i really too believe you have to be able to stand up on your own two feet at some point what darren um helped with me was he was able to unlock 
and give me tools in which I could be that positive person. So if Alessia was down or the people around me were down, I had the ability to to be able to turn that around and to be able to say, okay, I'm feeling down today. What is it that I can live for? And my, my firm belief is you've always, despite how terrible it is, you've always got something to live for. There's one thing that's there and, you know, there's that the old classic stuff of, you know, the, the, the most positive thing you do in, the, in your entire day may be getting out of bed and making your bed. But if you focus on that as being a positive rather than the whole rest of the day was dark and terrible, then your world is naturally going to be a better place. And, you know, and I, have, I think I've always had that ability. I think it's, you know, inside me that I do look at the world, you know, definitely as being a really positive place. You know, we've had a, a, a massive 12 previous, you know, prior 12 months now with, you know, COVID and everything else going on. Um, yet, you know, I, I've looked at that, you know, and I always talk about opportunities. I've looked at that last 12 months of what have been the opportunities there. Well, I've been, you know, Alessia was homeschooling, so I've been able to spend more time with her, you know. I've been able to, you know, work from home myself, so I've been able to spend time, you know, with those I love more. And so there's there's always, and, and that's been my life, and that's what I've done. So regardless of how tragic and traumatic <laughs> what you go through in life is there, there will always be something positive it's it's being able to have the ability to focus on that little positive knowing that hopefully the next day there'll be two positive things to think about and then three and maybe it'll go back to one again but then you can always just build on that and yeah and I look at myself like I am an unbelievably lucky guy in my life you know I've I've shared my life with two absolutely beautiful partners. You know, I have a beautiful 10-year-old daughter. I live in, you know, in an area that, you know, I wouldn't want to live anywhere else in the world. You know, I, I love the mountains. I love the outdoors and the outdoor activity. You know, I have a great job. You know, so, you know, regardless of what I've been through, you know, I didn't sit there and say, whoa, me, you know, my world's ended and how this is a disaster and what why do bad things always happen to me? I, I looked at it and said, okay, so what's the what's the opportunities, you know, here? And you know, a classic example is one of the things in my mind that went through and would play in my mind. My mind always goes through trying to go through positive scenarios. So, you know, one of the ones that even, you know, when Rosanna was alive was I would play in my mind what my life was going to look like with a new partner. At, at some point in my life and you know you can look at that and you go mate that's a what are you doing you know your your, your <laughs> wife's dying she's next to you she's she's alive but you know you, that's you know what are you doing but my thing is my mind has to be able to to go and and dream and fantasize and look at what the opportunities may be outside of the the mire that I'm currently in because Otherwise, I think you can just get stuck in the mire, and that's something that I've yet yeah, never ever wanted to do. And it's and it's not just you know it's not rainbow unicorn just looking at life going oh everything's amazing and it's incredible. Like I suffer the same pain that everyone else suffers. It's just having the ability to be able to deal with that. And and I think that you know going back to just the start of the conversation is the ability. To, to recognize that sometimes that's difficult to do on your own and that's where you know mental health professionals come in they give you the tools to be able to do that but at the end of the day it's whether you're grieving whether you're trying to be positive whether you're just trying to get out of bed in the morning and make your bed um, it's the reality is it's up to you and it's only up to you as an individual you can have all the support you want you know you can have the greatest psychologist in the world but if you're not willing to do the hard work 
then there's there's no use going and seeing them. And and life is hard work. Like it's it, my life to be the positive life that it is takes hard work. You know, this is and this is where I think we're missing it. You know, not to go too philosophical, but missing it as a society currently is we're looking at we're looking at the world just to provide us with the entertainment and the happiness and the everything and the calmness and the everything else that we need. But what a lot of us are not actually willing to do the hard work that it takes to get there, and it, and it takes hard decisions. It takes the ability to you know to to take opportunities and to be able to grasp things as they come by you. You know all of those sort of things, and you do need great people in your life, and you do need great support. But at the end of the day, it comes down to you as an individual to be able to do it. I couldn't agree with you more. To finish with, I've just got a couple of questions, and one of them um, was that I found you know for me and i'm curious to get your take on it that the environment that i was actually in was really important and by that i mean in mine was in southwest victoria between waterloo and port ferry and it was the ability um, to get on the beach and to get into the surf and to long walks in nature what have you was Threadbow's similarly important to you environmentally for your mental health? Oh, 100 percent, and continues to be so i mean if you look at my meditation is not i i struggle to meditate in the traditional sense of meditation, struggle for time, struggle for all that sort of stuff, but they're not excuses. But my meditation is being in the outdoors and exercising. So for the first 20 minutes of that exercise, whether I'm riding, skiing, whatever I'm doing, my brain is processing probably quite a bit of the negativity that may have gone on in my life or some of the things that are that are currently going on that I need to deal with. By the time I get to the half hour mark of that exercise, you know, especially if I'm on my own, I am in basically a meditative meditative state. And that's what the mount the mountains, the same as the ocean, you know, they're unbelievably spiritual places. They, you know, just that freedom of being out and walking through nature and giving your brain time without a phone, without, you know, earbuds in your ear listening to music. Like I never do that when I'm exercising. It's just me, my bike, the outdoors. And and you know, and I can do that on my own, which is an amazing way of doing it and great for my mental health. Or, you know, you share it with people. I share it with Alessia or you know, I share it with, you know, those I love and we go out and we have a great time doing some amazing walks because that's the ability too, you know, you it, it's about being able to share those things with others as well. But yeah, one hundred percent, you know, exactly reflecting your experience in that, you know, incredibly important. And 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 that's my physical health and my ability to be fit and all of that is incredibly important to me because I want to continue to be able to to share you know the outdoors my mum and dad are, are currently you know in the early 80s you know they go on two three hour walks out into the the back of the snowies every single day and and that for them is you know so crucial in their mental health and has always been that's why they dragged us out into the great outdoors all our lives so yeah for me for me it's absolutely vital just so restorative, isn't it? Um, and to conclude with, I just wanted to, you and I started talking probably close to 12 months ago. I think we had our first uh, chat courtesy, and I should acknowledge uh, Kelly Curtin from BCNA for introducing us. Um, but uh, we were talking in our very first chats, or I was talking to you about um, the ability, to, and you've touched on it during this discussion, um, 
to take the step and be game enough to embrace life and embrace a new relationship. And I think at the time you said to me, um, you know, you sound like you're shitting yourself a little bit. And I said, I absolutely am. But um, um, for me, it's um, I'm, I'm so glad that I listened to your words, Stuart, because uh, I have taken that step forward and I am in, in a wonderful relationship with a beautiful woman today. And uh, I, I, I think a lot about that uh, that discussion that you and I had that day. Um, have you similarly taken your own advice and, and kept moving forward in that regard? You can't be scared of the loss. And, yeah, you do question yourself sometimes of how much um, love do you have to give. But, you know, I've realised that it's um, that it's infinite, you know, that, you know, the, the upside to a loving, in, intimate relationship with a partner is so valuable for your, your mental health, for your well-being, for your physical health, for everything in your life, you know, regardless of what it brings, the highs, the lows, regardless of the fact that, you know, there is a possibility that, you know, someone may die in the future and, you know, you may go through that loss again. I think the, the, to, to miss out on that would be, would be such a lost, you know, I talk about opportunities, would be su- such a lost opportunity. And, and I, you know, it's, it's not something you can force on people, but it's definitely, you know, something that if you have, you know, if a partner's died, if you've lost someone, you know, give yourself the opportunity to love again. Don't, don't be afraid. Don't be scared of it because the upsides, um, you know, of that loving intimate relationship is so far outweigh, you know, any downside that can go wrong. So, yeah, I mean, I am, you know, in a, in a beautiful relationship again now, um, you know, it adds so much to, to my life and to the to the lives of um, you know those who are close to me that um, yeah you, you 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 I I wouldn't have it any other way and and to be honest and you know I, I joke about it with my new partner but you know if um, you know the, the you know is this uh, I think Lee Sales said it um, in her book you know <laughs> is that you know is Mrs Diver number three going to come along does Mrs Diver number three have you know any greater chance of dying than um, you know unfortunately the Mrs Diver number one and Mrs. Diver number two, and you know, tr- not trying to be facetious, but statistically, no. And so, therefore, you know, life goes on. And all I say is that, um, hopefully, in the next one, um, yeah, if it ever does occur, that uh, you know, we we both die peacefully uh, together in a very long time, because uh, <laughs> that 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 would be the greatest outcome for me. But if it doesn't happen, I'm sure that um, I'll get up and bounce back and 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 go forward from whatever life throws at me. Well, mate, thanks so much for. Uh... Um, coming on the podcast. Um, we have been talking on and off and emailing for close to 12 months and I'm delighted we've been able to have this chat and I, I really hope we, um, at some stage in the future, you never know, get to meet each other face to face. It'd be lovely to have a beer with you. That sounds great. Cheers, Bill. All the best, mate. Thank you. Thank you.